If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And today, we are bringing you a great conversation with Rob Collins about how you can create a more resilient workforce and a more resilient organization. As I think about resiliency, and I look back over the last year, I think about spring 2020, when there was a lot of uncertainty. And one of the things that I said to a lot of my clients who were coming back and saying, hey, Dolph, can we do strategic planning again, was, you know, spring 2020 is not the best time for that, because there's a lot of uncertainty. We we did not know how the election was going to turn out. We had this pandemic that was happening. Really, there was all of this uncertainty, and that's not a great time to do strategic planning. That's a good time to think about your tactical plan and how you're going to get through the next year. Well, it's now we're approaching spring 2021, and I think we know a lot more. We have a lot more certainty about the future. So if you are interested in strategic planning and, frankly, a more participatory, inclusive, and agile strategic planning process than maybe what a lot of organizations do, reach out to me at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And as I said, today we're going to be talking to Rob Collins about creating a more resilient workforce, even when your organization works with people who are experiencing trauma. And I got to share with you, Rob Collins knows a thing or two about trauma. He is a clinical social worker. By the way, went to the University of Georgia, which has a great clinical social work program. Many of my close friends that are social workers went there. So he's a clinical social worker who specializes in trauma therapy and professional training around trauma. But there's something else I got to share with you. And this is also why I say Rob knows about trauma. He was also in the Army Infantry. And he wasn't stateside. He did a combat tour in Iraq. And anyone who has been in combat certainly understands trauma, is around trauma, and sometimes, oftentimes, experience trauma themselves. So what is Rob doing now? He is currently working on team building, 
ropes courses, and training at Chris 180 in Atlanta. And Chris 180 is a great organization. I think most listeners know I have lived in Atlanta for the last 10 or 11 years now. And so I'm really familiar with Chris 180. They heal children and they strengthen families. And they do this through counseling, through housing, through community support, and foster care. And I also just have to share this with you all. They were probably, certainly in the traditional American South, but probably in the United States, they were one of the first non-LGBTQ organizations that provided culturally competent services in the Southeast. So Chris 180 is on the cutting edge, and Rob is part of them being on the cutting edge now as organizations are looking at trauma. So Rob, welcome to the podcast. So glad you're here. Thank you so much. Now, I got to ask, how does psychological safety and trust impact a nonprofit's bottom line? Wow. Yeah. You know, I was listening to your your intro and I, I love that you're talking about resiliency. And I think that that is like probably one of my favorite words when we're talking about trauma, because a lot of times we talk about trauma, it's it's kind of this is a bad thing. It's It's kind of weighing you down. But at the end of the day is that, you know, resiliency is the best way to prevent that and to slow that down and help you kind of integrate that experience into your life, you know. And I think one of the trainings that we have kind of started to develop is this idea of resilient businesses, resilient nonprofits. And so, you know, when you think about trauma, not just, you know, your pre-client trauma is what I, I, I typically talk about. You also have the experience that the clients are bringing to you. And then you have like the political climate, you know, you think about like systems, as far as social work goes, you have like your micro life, which is like the things that are happening to you, right? And there's things that are happening around you. And then the things that are happening around that. And you think about all of those things that are weighing down. And, you know, when you come into work, you don't need any more stress on your life. And so, you know, if you're able to work with their staff and help develop this psychological safety, your workforce is going to be more innovative. They're going to be more creative. They're going to be able to adjust with the times. They're going to be able to kind of change it with the demands. You know, if something happens, they're going to be able to switch. I, I think a lot about um, Chris 180 as far as what we did as soon as uh, COVID struck, you know, we were able to really switch and really convert to this completely virtual world. I think I was given a lot of creativity and I have a lot of psychological safety myself. And so we were able to innovate and just really rapidly transition to this virtual world and really knock it out of the park. Right. One of the things that I think, Rob, and gosh, I'd love for us to have a little bit of a conversation about this, is that many of us, and, and I'll be frank and say this was true for me when I decided to go to social work school, many of us choose to go into a helping profession because of trauma that we experienced in our own lives. And whether we do it intentionally or not, we bring that in into our organization with us and we can make it a good thing or it can be a counterproductive thing. Absolutely. God, it's, that's such a good point too. I think you were just talking about the military and that's the whole reason why I got into social work in the first place is I saw that, you know, the VA was only hiring clinical social workers at the time. I was like, well, that's what I need to do. So, you know, we all bring this stuff. And the problem is that you'll sit across, you will a hundred percent sit across from yourself no matter what setting you're in, you know, if you're if you're a therapist, if you're a case manager, if you're, you know, uh, working for legal aid, anybody, you are going to sit across from yourself one day. And if you have unresolved trauma or unresolved stress from your childhood, from adulthood, any of it, it's going to come up. 
And, you know, the challenges is, is what do you do at that time? You know, do you seek help, you know, or do you run from it or does it impact you and then therefore impact your clients and the people that you're working with? Right. And what can organizations do to help their staff members and their teams better navigate that when, and I love that phrase, when they find themselves, and that's happened, that happened to me, when you find yourself sitting across from yourself and thinking, oh my gosh, this is what I experienced and I'm panicking in my own chest. Well, I think the first, I think there's like kind of a, a layered approach. It's kind of like a little bit of an onion. And I think the first thing that we need to really do is just put on our trauma goggles. You know, we all have little little goggles that we put on to see this stuff, right? And I think it's like the matrix where you take the pill and you're finally able to see trauma. So I think the first thing that you really have to do is just do a trauma-informed approach for your business. And it could look like, you know, having a consultant come in or it could just be having a training, just training your directors, your CEOs, just letting people know that there is trauma out there. I think that's the first approach. I think the second approach is also kind of really taking it really seriously. I think developing and asking questions and saying like, hey, are you, are you feeling okay? You know, just to like at the very basic level, um, just to really get people having these conversations, checking in. And then I think also, you know, it's important for us to develop policies that are really going to be effective to make sure that people have places to talk, process, and even have time off. So let's take a step back and go to that that second point of sometimes your manager really just has to recognize that this person is experiencing maybe some secondhand trauma. Like what does a good manager do first to recognize it and then second to respond to it? Geez, that's, a, that's such a good question. I think the first thing is that you have to develop those trauma goggles. You know, you really have to really do some reading, do some training. And if this is the first time you've heard about trauma outside of, you know, combat or, you know, violence or, you know, assault, then I would really, I would really hope that people would really pick up a few books or some trainings or read about it and really figure out what that trauma looks like, not just on the battlefield, not just in violent settings, but also in the workplace. Um, that's the first thing, just develop those trauma goggles. So real quick, let's talk about what that trauma might look like. Like, give me some examples. Let's say you're working with clients and you know, you're know you constantly berated with trauma. I had, um, my boss uses this example all the time. She was working with immigrants and she was just constantly talking about torture and violence and and assault and all these things on a daily basis. And she was just dragging, you know, just almost kind of couldn't even get in the door. Her head's down, her arms are kind of kind of loose. Um, and normally she's just kind of like really bolsterous and happy and like pointing people like, hey, good morning. But she was just really dragging and HR spotted and was like, hey, are you okay? Are you gonna, you know, what's going on? So I think that just a, a character shift is a really going to be a, a good indicator and just really checking in with people. And you don't really have to take them aside and be like, tell me all of your problems, you know, just checking in. And I think just having a supervisor or a manager, director, anybody like that, that's just checking in. And I think that's a really good way to start. So walk me through this a little bit, because one of the things I sometimes hear from managers and sometimes hear from like HR directors is, oh, I don't want to get too personal with someone. I don't want I don't want to push someone in a way that they feel uncomfortable. So how does a manager do that check-in? Really walk that through for me. Well, I think first thing you have to do is, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about in trauma-informed care is this idea of rituals and routines. So if you are kind of baking the cake of your business, 
and building these things, these check-ins on a daily basis, you know? So one of the things that we do in all of our meetings is we have a little, little kind of unique check-in. I do it all the time in our virtual trainings is, you know, I'll ask somebody that will, they'll come on this training and I'll say, Hey, go in your home and bring back a color of something of how you're feeling. Right. So they'll go in their home and they'll, you know, if I'm feeling green, I've got a green jacket right here. I'm like, Hey, I'm feeling green. Or, you know, if I'm feeling red, I've got my badge right here. And I am not, you don't want to test me today. So really kind of baking this into the cake and really saying things like, you know, once you start processing that and start having that baseline, some people aren't going to be anything. They'll be like, Hey, I'm green to go. I'm good all the time. But once you start that, then you kind of like prep the drop zone. I'm sure I, I don't really know any other military phrases, but you know, you really prep that drop zone for that emotional conversation. I love that. That's a really great idea to just kind of make that check in a ritual and do it every day or every week in your team meeting. You know, I think that if you don't do that and you don't really have that experience, I would find some, there's a lot of resources out there to be really be able to process that information. But you also, there's also a, a, a damaging side of that as well. So you can also be like, hey, tell me what's going on. Tell me what's going on. Um, my wife was working with somebody and they were kind of really encouraging them to tell them what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong. And they finally said, all right, here's the situation, you know, just listed all of these horrific things. And they, and the manager said, well, what do you want me to do with that? And now they're traumatized, right? So they spent all that effort kind of keeping it inside and the manager made them get this out there. So, you know, so where is that boundary, you know? Let's back up. Like, what could that manager have done differently or said differently, even if they were not able to actually do much of anything to help them? How could that manager have handled that differently? So the first thing you, is just check in with them. Cause I think at the end of the day is, you know, is saying like, Hey, you know, it looks to me that you're, you're having kind of a hard time, you know, and that's still a very basic conversation. Yeah. It's, I had a rough weekend. Right. And that's it. So the next thing is you don't have to say like, well, let's talk about it. Let's, you know, let's go to the bar and grab a beer or whatever it is. You don't have to do that because that's not appropriate for a manager to do. Right. But what you can do is you can say, like, what can I do to help you? What, what do you need from me? Or, what, you know, can I take something off your plate? Or, you know, can I, um, can I delegate something for you? And that way you can kind of just say, like, hey, I'm here for you, whatever you need, you know. That is such a powerful question. So I think what you're saying is after that, that manager's team member really just bared their soul for the manager to say, okay, what can I do to help you? And then the, then they can talk about the possible solutions and what the manager can do, not just, well, what do you want me to do with that? Which I agree is a bad response as a manager. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just so hard. And I, and I think that that's something that we are trying to explore too, is this balance between kind of productivity and then co-regulation. And, and for those of you that are kind of unfamiliar with that term, co-regulation is like, you know, the two of us working to bring our emotions down and kind of bring it to an appropriate level. And so, you know, obviously within a re relationship that you have, friends, significant other, whatever it may be, you know, it's highly appropriate to work with each other to bring our emotions down. However, in a workplace, you know, you can start to bring that down, but you know, you may not really want to get into these intimate conversations in a workplace setting. That's where it's a really great way to say like, whatever you need from me, I can do for you. And I would imagine helping our staff members and our managers understand things like co-regulation, probably the best time to do that is before there's that traumatic crisis or trauma emerges. Probably the best time to do that is when things are kind of okay and you're doing some basic training. And then you can actually even say, hey, you remember that concept of co-regulation? Could we both bring this down just a little bit? 
yeah, or, you know, what, what can I do to help you bring this down? You know, what, what are the things that I have within my power to do? One thing too, is as a manager, I would be really, um, I would really highly recommend a lot of people to find, you know, what therapeutic services you have within your work. I think a lot of businesses offer clinical counseling through their insurance, or maybe even within the office building themselves. And so prepping that before, I think that's such a great point is really setting that aside. And then so you can kind of really leverage that conversation at a later date. And I'll share with you one of the things I found really helpful, because oftentimes team members will think, well, I don't need clinical counseling. And so one of the things I found really helpful is when I've been with organizations that have an EAP service, which by the way is not expensive. For a few dollars per employee per year, you can get an EAP service. And you can say, sounds like maybe you might benefit from talking with someone. It's not clinical counseling, but but what ends up happening is that EAP service is trained to be the gateway to clinical counseling. I love that. Yeah, I love it. And I honestly think that once people are kind of at that point, like, okay, now I need therapy, it's kind of, it's going to be kind of a hard way to kind of claw your way out. Um, so just having somebody to talk to, but I would also encourage, you know, people to develop because because one of the things that we really talk about in a lot of our trainings is this idea of developing almost a resiliency toolkit. Like when's the last time you've gone out with your friends, your family, you know, and that's what's so hard right now. Right now is such a hard time because, you know, COVID has really restricted, I guess, you know, a lot of our rituals and routines, you know, where, you know, you would go meet your parents every Sunday, right? You would see them, you would have dinner with them, you would go meet your sister every month or whatever it is, or you would have these weekly conversations or go have brunch or lunch or whatever it is with your friends. And that's just kind of almost completely been eradicated. And it's hard because we have, we had these rituals set in place. And if we're not intentional about it, then it really causes an increase in our stress in our daily lives. I love that you bring that up, and I'm right there with you. I think it is so critical in terms of resiliency that we have rituals and routines that help bring us up and keep us out of the depths of feeling bad or trauma. Yeah, you know, uh, I think it's important to also think about spirituality. I think a lot of people have this, have, and, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to temple or church or a mosque to interact with spirituality. Spirituality can be just believing that humanity is genuinely good, you know, just believing that there is a lot of good things out there in this world, you know, that aren't in with within a book, right? Also knowing that your mistakes are learning opportunity. I think a lot of times we just view like, I am my mistake. I made this mistake. I am a terrible person. But in reality, you know, a lot of times we're learning this. So I think as a manager, especially as a manager, especially as a leader, is really just saying like, hey, you know what? It's okay. And allowing your staff to really make these mistakes, make calculated errors. And I think that's that's a really important thing is, is instilling that in your staff is, is the idea that you can make these errors, but just walk me through your thought process. Uh, and I just have to say that that relates to one of my favorite quotes, and I've normally seen it in sports settings, but it's that success is not forever and failure is not fatal. And part of what I love about that is when we do experience success, then it does not go to our head so much because we're like, okay, yeah, I gosh, you know, last year was really successful, but it doesn't mean every year is going to be successful, but also that failure is not fatal. You know, we get back up and we rebuild and we start again. I love it. You know, in our uh, management training, we, I quote General McChrystal, who was, who just came into this stuff and he really pioneered a lot of about like learning and then leading rather than just leading and then teaching, you know what I'm saying? And one of his quotes, he says that as a leader, you can allow your troops to fail 
but not be a failure. And I think that that's a really powerful statement is that it's like, it's like, hey, it's okay to make mistakes and you're not a failure. Let's take this apart and be like, hey, wow, you know, this was really great. This right here, this really great. This maybe uh, was a calculated error. And this was great. I love that. That's a great, great quote. It really is. And I think that when I'm training staff, when I'm working with other companies, I really believe that the core of psychological safety in business, especially, is this idea of like, you can make calculated risks and then we'll process this after it's over. Because at the end of the day is that if you are running a company or a business or a nonprofit or whatever it may be, and you just like, you're like, you cannot make mistakes. Everybody is this, this super stressed out, super uh, reactionary. That's the word I'm looking for. Then you're not going to innovate and you're not going to be creative and you're not going to grow. You're just going to say exactly where you're at. And let me also say, if the culture is mistakes are not okay and mistakes are not allowed, people will hide their mistakes. And by the time you find out about it, that mistake is blown up and you have a major, major problem, not a small problem. We started implementing ARC, which is attachment regulation and competency throughout our agency. And, and where we found, I think it was a Harvard Business Review that did a study on um, an oil rig out in the ocean. You know, what they started doing is they implemented this really, you know, touchy-feely kind of feelings-oriented um, process with these super hyper-masculine guys that are out there just just drenched in oil, just yelling and cussing at each other. But what they found out was that it really developed a high level of psychological safety. And if there was a mistake or they saw something that they made a mistake, they were more likely to tell somebody and, and casualties and damage went way down. Nobody was getting hurt. You know, job productivity was going up. And it was a really eye-opening experience that just the idea of saying like, hey, I, you know, I messed up here. Let's see how we can fix this changed everything. All right. We're going to have to drill down, pun intended. So ARC stands for attachment, regulation, and competence, you said? Yeah. And so what's the attachment piece? So attachment, you know, a, a lot of times when I think about attachment, it's not like the, the the Velcro, right? It's not like this idea, but attachment in psychology is this idea of, you know, connection between two humans, okay? It's just a really basic idea. It's like how well you attach and attune to other humans. So, you know, when you're um, with your mom as a child, you know, how deep is that connection, right? And how with any parents that you have, how deep is that connection? How likely are you to connect with businesses or friends or bosses, any of that stuff? It's the connection between humans, essentially. All right. So that's attachment. Regulation. Regulation is, you know, you think a lot about regulation as like a, like a valve on with water or heat or whatever it is. So you're a regulating and turning it up, turning it down. So when we think about emotions, that's really the same thing as like a water valve, right? So if something really awful happens to you, your emotions go up. You almost think about it like, uh, you know, you have a baseline right in the middle. And so if you're really activated, you're going to be, you know, yelling and shouting and flailing your hands, Right. Or, you know, just like that example I talked before about where somebody was really kind of hypo-activated, like under-activated. So they're kind of dragging in, they're kind of eyes droopy, they're, you know, not so animated. And so the idea of regulation is to really kind of bring it up. If you're feeling down, bring it up. If you're feeling way too high, bringing it back down, just so we can just kind of still interact on a, a standard basis. Competence. I think I know, but I just feel like I should ask. 
Yeah, it's just, it's your ability to kind of negotiate your world. I think at the end of the day, that's just a really basic way. You know, when I worked with children a long time ago, I'll almost be diagnostic. When you're looking with children, how many friends do you have? How well are you doing in school? These were two really big things that I would ask a child because they could be having problems at home, but if they have friends and they're doing well in school, what's the issue here? Is it, is it the child, right? Or is it the home setting? right? So it's a really good indicator to really figure out how good you are at negotiating your environment. Got it. If we can take a quick shift, because now we've spent a good little bit of time talking about what managers should be doing and thinking and working on to really help create more resilient teams. But earlier in our conversation, you'd mentioned there's some policies as well that organizations should be considering. Yeah. So I think it's important to consider what types of things that you bake into this cake. I know that I've mentioned this baking, uh, you know, analogy several times at this point, but what is your vision as a business, right? What is your vision? And, And I think you mentioned before, what are your strategic and tactical goals as well? And I think it's really, really, really important to think about what your vision is because you know obviously i think a lot of the people know if you're already talking about vision is is that it's got to be broad and it's got to be inspiring so your strategies and your policies should really kind of complement each other and so if you think about it you know what are the, your policies on training right how much how many training hours do you have because you can't always have somebody um, thrown into the mix and not have training or not having supervision. I think that's something is very, very important. You know, for our therapists that are constantly exposed to trauma, it's part of our policies that they have weekly supervision where they sit down with another licensed clinical therapist and they say like, hey, tell me what it's like to be you. Let me help you put this stuff back in the box so you can get out there back in the battlefield and do what you have to do. So those are two really kind of good examples is how much training and supervision. Um, I would also think about how you manage performance. Uh, I think a lot of times as well, you think about um, a write-up, right? I think a lot of businesses have write-ups where somebody makes a mistake. So what is your policy on writing up somebody? Is it just like you made a mistake? Here's, you know, take your spanking and go get back to work. You know, a lot of times it really, really should be is this idea of workplace development, right? So you made a mistake. Let's process this out, right? You know, you were late to work. What was your process like, right? What was, you know, did you stop for coffee? You know, do you live an hour away? Maybe we can find you a, 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 a virtual location or something that's a little bit closer. Process this stuff out. So those are kind of three quick policies that you can really implement right now that will really help you. So let's talk about those and let's kind of go in reverse order. I know, and I've been guilty of this, although I try to catch myself. Sometimes, you know, performance improvement plan, the initials are PIP, P-I-P. So sometimes as a manager, I will hear myself say, okay, we need to PIP them out. And oh my gosh, that that is that is absolutely the wrong way to approach PIPs. Yeah, and it's so funny because I think we have our own little acronym, right? We have our CAP. And it's funny, it's so funny that I, we were just talking about this, is that I've been in this process of moving us from this cap to a PIP, which is a process, right, the process improvement plan. And I feel like there is this branding issue. And I, and I, and I feel like there's this issue of like taking acronyms, right, that spell out a word, right, and, and just pipping people out or capping them out, you know, so you really want to, to make sure that you are using these things as an opportunity to be a leader, right, and to inspire and to encourage rather than just being like, okay, I'm done with you. You made a mistake, you know, um, because at the end of the day, 
I have to say that is about you as a manager or you as a leader. That's your stuff coming up, right? Like I hired you, you disappointed me. I'm done with you. You're over and out, right? Because at the end of the day, because when I was in here, if I did the same thing, I'd be done, right? So it's almost like this like generational leader that is, has really just going to cause problems in the future. Yeah. And so real quick, I'm guessing CAP stands for Corrective Action Plan. Yes. Look at you. Yeah. You're brilliant. Absolutely. Well, I can't say that. I've just been around administration and management too long. That's all. But I just wanted to make sure just so I knew. I will say, though, I, I kind of feel like whether you call it a CAP or a PIP or something else, like the real measure of success is how many people improve, not how quickly did you get people out the door. Right. And I really, really, truly believe, and this may be just an overgeneralization or maybe my own bias against nonprofits, but I think at the same time is that we hire a lot of people that are passionate and driven and they are good at their job, right? They're good at their job and then they become a manager, right? And then they're good at managing people and and making sure that they adhere to the policies and the grants or whatever it may be. And then they're like, okay, you are now a director, okay? And so you take somebody that's really passionate and driven and good at this job and now they are a director without the capacity of seeing strategically or tactically or how that feeds into vision. You know, so now you're at a point where it's like, I didn't do this when I was in your job. So, you know, we need somebody else. We need somebody more like me. Right. And and it's funny. I know listeners have heard me say this a lot, but one of my pet peeves about the nonprofit sector, I also think this happens in small and medium-sized businesses, for-profit businesses. But one of my pet peeves is we take an individual contributor, a case manager, a grant writer, and we say, oh my gosh, you've been a great case manager. You've been an incredible grant writer. And now we have an... Uh, your boss just left, we're going to promote you to that position and you're going to be managing three case managers. You're going to be managing two grant writers. And we do that without giving the new manager the mentoring, the support, and the coaching necessary for them to be successful. And then their director scratches their head and goes, why isn't this person a successful manager, case manager, manager? Why aren't they a successful manager of the grant writing department? And the reason is because we failed them. We said, you are great as an individual contributor. And we just assumed that meant they were great at everything without making sure they got the skills they needed. Exactly. You know, and I, and I was just thinking about that is that maybe that director that was probably in the same shoes as them, maybe they're like, you know what, I need to read this. I need to research this. I need to subscribe to successful nonprofits podcasts. You know, I need to do all this stuff that I need to do in order to elevate myself as a director. Why can't you do that? Right. And I think a lot of people, that's just expecting someone else to do something that you had the kind of understanding and, and, and knowledge about. And not everybody's going to do that. Not everybody has that priority. Not everybody knows where to look or what podcasts or what YouTube channels to look at, right? And so I think it's important that you develop as a manager. And it's almost like raising a child a little bit where it's like you you develop as a human while raising another child, right? You develop as a leader while leading and inspiring and encouraging other people, you know, to really get that secondary paycheck is really what I call it is this idea of, of satisfaction. Because at the end of the day is that, a nonprofit, a lot of us are really helping people. And if you're being uh, a jerk as a manager or a boss, you're really kind of almost like stealing that secondary paycheck away from them. One of the things that I think is really successful for organizations is to think about lead positions on the road to becoming a manager. I did not learn about this on my own. One of my professional mentors, while I was not in the military, one of my bosses and professional mentors was a West Point grad. And she used to tell this great story when she was a junior officer. She was reporting to a colonel and she was like 
two, three years into her into her military career. And the colonel came to her and said, every Thursday from noon to four, I'm going to be working on improving my golf score and you are going to be working on improving your management. So every new, every Thursday from noon to four, you're in charge. And on Friday, we'll talk about issues that you encountered and we'll work through them and we'll figure out maybe what you should do differently the following week. I I know. It was a real like, wow, what an interesting thing to do. And so, and again, like she was a boss of mine. And what we ended up doing, we ended up designing what we called really these program leads. And so if we thought you had leadership potential, instead of waiting for your boss to resign or leave and then moving into your boss's position, and we also were really clear, it's a role, not a job. And so it's a role you're in. You don't get extra money for it. It's an opportunity. So it's a role. And in this role, you're kind of your manager's number two. When your manager's on vacation, guess what? You stand in for your manager. But it's also really clear. Here's what your scope of responsibility is. Here's what you can do. Here's what you can't do. And so you can't do everything your boss could do. So like you can't write someone up without going to your boss's manager and having that conversation. So it's it's really clear where the bumpers are there. The other thing, though, that I just thought was really just so brilliant about this was also then your boss's job, your manager's job, was to go to the lead and say, hey, this month I need you to do my monthly report for the executive director. Or this, so every month you had to give them some new task that they had never done before and offer them support. And I'll share with you, Rob, a couple of things came out of this. The first is we would have some people who would become leads and then, and then come to us and say, I never want to be a manager. And I'll share with you, Rob, we viewed that as a success, right? Because if someone realizes they don't want to be a manager, isn't it better they realize that before we make them a manager? And they realize they've made a mistake, but they feel stuck, you know, because they're like, well, I can't go back. That's humiliating. And I can't stay here. So I need to go somewhere else and do something else. Um, so that was a success, a huge success. But then the other thing is we then could kind of give people a little bit of a trial run. And so... After a couple years of them being a lead, we knew whether or not they were really manager material. So for us, that was a game changer. Again, wish I could say that I actually had developed that, but Rhonda was the person who really took me aside and was like, Dolph, here's what, and she was a board chair of mine, here's what you should be doing to develop your leaders. I love it. And and you know what's really fascinating is that that idea, that understanding is strong in the military. I mean, it is like, it is, it is almost as, as important as learning to shoot because at the end of the day, it's all about succession planning in the military because at the end of the day is you never honestly know if you're going to return from this mission. And because, you know, I remember in the Revolutionary War in history class, you know, they were always talking about shooting the officers and taking them out because once he took the officer, it was over, you know. And so the American military really kind of baked this thing into the, into the cake where if somebody falls – they also have somebody else to take their place immediately. I think that's such a brilliant approach to really say, you know, I need you to do my job. And and one of the things that we're working on right now at Chris 180 is that um, I'm not sure, sure if you're familiar with Lean Six Sigma yet. Oh, of course. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Well, I just got my uh, green belt in, uh, in February. Congratulations. And so, yeah, so I'm really hoping to bring Lean Six Sigma to the nonprofit world. And, and so what we've also designed is this idea of, of maybe even creating a committee of people that are trained in Lean Six Sigma. And so it's almost like a succession planning group almost where you take the people that are going to kind of develop up and say like, okay, well, let's think about this 
as a level higher. Like if you were the COO, right? Let's look at how you would handle this and how you would treat this. And then we just kind of almost do war games, right? Where we, we suss it out and then we take our recommendations and we actually hand it to the COO. And they're like, wow, this is great. This is a great idea. Let's, let's run with it. I love that. That is awesome. Rob, there's more that I want us to get into, but we are running out of time. And I've got to make sure that I ask you the off the map question. Now, I thought about maybe an off the map question about being in the army. And ultimately, I decided on something that I think might be of even more interest. I understand that you took a run at being a comic. Yes, I did. So growing up, I've always loved comedy. I've always loved making people laugh. You know, I think it's always been kind of in uh, my blood, in my family to really kind of make people laugh and build trust and build connection. And so, uh, you know, my mom and my dad are both hilarious people uh, in their own way. And um, I was at a best man speech and I, and I spent a lot of time writing in and developing and people loved it. They thought it was hilarious and so funny, so engaging, so heartwarming. And I had tons of people come up to me and they say, you should do stand up comedy. And um, I said, okay, I'm going to do it. You know, I'd already been to combat and, you know, what, what could be worse than people trying to blow you up or kill you? And, and in reality, it's comedy it is there's <laughs> nothing more frightening than standing up in front of, you know, uh, I did it. I actually did an open mic at the Laughing Skull in Midtown. What I realized is that um, that I had to really face my fear. And, and, and I really thought about it. And as far as my clients go, is that, you know, when you're working with trauma, you're essentially asking people to talk about their most horrific stories and they're frightened and they're terrified to even tell a stranger what has happened to them when they were a child or when they were an adult. And, you know, I, I said, you know, if I can't do this, if I run from this, then I don't really deserve to be a trauma therapist. So um, I went up there and I clutched that microphone and I ran through all of my material and I got a few people to laugh, but uh, I completed it and that was it. And I was like, you know what? Never again. I'm never, I'm never doing that again. I'm just going to do like training and facilitation where I can maybe throw in a few laughs, but that's not the expectation. Um, so maybe one day, maybe I'll revisit it again. But uh, right now, I think, uh, <laughs> I think I've had enough for one lifetime. I love that. So your, your comedy was a one night only. Like if you miss that night, you missed it. That's it. That, I mean, it's, uh, you know, if somebody has a recording of it somewhere, um, I, I, I hope it never sees the light of day, honestly. See, in Brooklyn, I think that would be called um, curated comedy. So there you go. It was once and it's done. That's it. That's it. You know, it's, it is a unique experience. That, that's awesome. Well, <laughs> Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. And listeners, I want to make sure that you know how you can get more information about the important work around resiliency and trauma that Rob is doing. So if you head over to chris180.org, 180s all numbers, chris180.org, there's a few things I want you to check out at that website. The first is make sure you learn more about their CEU workshops. And let me share with you, I know a lot of our listeners are not in the Atlanta area. In fact, the vast majority are not. They also have some virtual trainings and virtual CEU offerings. So make sure that you check those out. Also, Chris180 and Rob have just launched trainings about trauma-informed leadership for managers. So if you go to chris180.org, you can find out more about those trainings, again, for trauma-informed leadership specifically for managers.
And of course, if you're in the Atlanta area and you know of a family or a child that might benefit from Chris 180 services, check them out. And then finally, if you are at a mental health agency, a social support agency, or a housing agency anywhere in the country that is serving children, and you want to see an organization that has really adopted best practices and doing it successfully, go over to their website. Hey, Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Well, listeners, it, you missed any of those URLs. There's only one, chris180.org. It's not too tough. But if you missed it, go over to SuccessfulNonprofits.com, and we will have links not only to Chris 180, but we will also do the sublinks on their website so you can find their CEUs and you can find the other programming that they are doing. And don't forget that if your organization is now finally emerging from the last year and going, okay, it's time for us to be thinking about strategic planning, but we want participatory strategic planning where we are inclusive of all of our stakeholders, reach out to us at SuccessfulNonprofits.com as well. And finally, listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode and if it was helpful for you, there are two additional episodes that I think you should consider listening to. The first is episode 161, Adopting a Trauma-Informed Approach with Kate Doherty. And the second is episode 29, Impact Without Burnout with Beth Cantor. Now, just a quick secret, Beth Cantor's about to come back on the podcast again. I think we'll probably have her in June or July. So don't miss that either. And listeners, if you've enjoyed this show, if you get something from it, please make sure that you rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher. I don't think you can really review on Spotify, but your streaming app of choice. That is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And of course, the lawyers make me say this. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney. I'm also not a licensed clinical social worker. So what that means is that neither I nor the Goldenberg Group are providing tax, legal, accounting, or mental health assistance. If you find yourself in need of tax, legal, accounting, or clinical therapeutic work, I encourage you to reach out to a licensed professional and get the help that you need.